Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Barr. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, with a crash of the cryptocurrency Luna, are you going to be able to make payments on your house? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you bring up cryptocurrency because um, a friend of Megan's was just visiting us and she's reading a book. Um, I wish I remember what it's called. It's like something about um, what money actually is, like the nature of money. And I guess like the, the like latest chapters in the book talk about cryptocurrency. And I was like, can you tell me what cryptocurrency is? And she was like, not really. <laughs> and we discussed how she has a friend who has a machine in their house that allows them to make cryptocurrency. And that so far has been the most confusing aspect of cryptocurrency to me. Is it like, I guess there are these machines that are like doing mathematical calculations. Um, so uh, unless this happens without my awareness, I am not in any way invested in cryptocurrency. So, I mean, it, I guess it's possible in theory that the University of Alabama, you know, retirement account has invested is. you heavily. It's, it's like 99% <laughs> Bitcoin. That is possible. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that was a very good description of cryptocurrency. You have a machine in your house, and it makes more <laughs> by doing some math, and uh, then things happen. It's worth money. It's worth more money. All of a sudden, it's worth less money. Who knows, man? So the thing I don't understand is like, okay, often currency um, comes into being because we like do something that contributes something to the world. So are these mathematical calculations solving some kind of problem or like building something? No, I mean, literally what they do is they uh, register transactions in the cryptocurrency. So like okay. th those mathematical operations keep the whole thing running. And then as a reward, you eventually get more. As I understand it, I'm obviously not an expert. Um, but no, they don't do anything useful. And as, in fact, uh, I think they're terribly power hungry. So it's like if you add up all the uh, energy that's used mining crypto worldwide, it's like, you know, the energy use of, I don't know, Sweden or something. So that's not okay. great. Yeah. Yeah. Is this going to adversely impact you? you well, you know, I actually uh, bought some Bitcoin uh, early in the year because I was like, well, you know, a lot of talk about Bitcoin and maybe this is a good, uh, you know, hedge against inflation, something, something, you know, I was like, yeah, maybe it'll be like counter cyclical. If stocks go down, Bitcoin goes up. Makes sense, right? That was, that was unwise, you know, I will, I think <laughs> that's a pretty safe to say. Um, yeah, I know, I know. So, uh, yeah. So as an investment, I would say it has not done great so far for me. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you. Shoot. Um, so when you come onto these podcasts, let's say it's like 10 minutes before our recording time, do you do anything to get ready for like us seeing each other on Zoom? Like, would you change your appearance in any way to be like ready to to be on a Zoom call with me? This isn't about me just eating that sausage. <laughs> I had this question in mind before you eating the sausage, but I see. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think I really get cleaned up for you. Do you get cleaned up for me? Well, today I noticed that I like had this call with you, and I was like, I was wearing pajamas because um, we finished teaching, and so this morning I've been like sitting around my house in my pajamas. Um, and so I put on pants, but I also put on a bra and I was like, do I need to wear a bra to be on a zoom call with Yoel? But that was my instinct. You know, not from my perspective. 
<laughs> you know, if you want to let them hang free, you're not going to offend me. As a matter of fact, I, su- I support comfort, I think, is my, my you primary. You support a lack, of su- a lack of support. Exactly right. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it depends if you're like one of those people who hate wearing bras, which apparently is a thing that like as a man, I'm not really aware of, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm told it's common. Yeah, I don't have strong feelings either way, actually. But I know people who like get home at the end of the day and they like take off their bra. Yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah. I wish that person felt that they never had to wear a bra. I, I 100% agree with that. So so you finished teaching. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we've been out for a couple of weeks now. Um, so it's officially summer for me, which is nice. I submitted grades like earlier this week. Well, congratulations. And I assume that means you're going to be drinking. It does mean I'm going to be drinking. Oh, our <laughs> listeners will be so pleased. What have you got? Um, I have a trim tab, which I think I've I've had trim tab beers before. Um, so it's an Alabama brewery located in Birmingham. Um, and this is, I would guess, their most popular beer. Um, it's a raspberry Berliner Weiss. Mm, nice. I uh, actually, I, I want the listeners to know, I was committed to the drinking beers. I went and bought beers even. But then my girlfriend, who's now here with me, opened a bottle of kava, which is like a sparkling wine. And the problem uh-huh. is once you open it, you kind of commit to drinking the whole thing or else throwing it out. It's not like it keeps, right? Because it's carbonated. So yep. I had to be pro-social and drink the kava. And I'm very Sounds sorry. Sounds like a lot of excuses. Right there, <laughs> it's, it's true. At least it's carbonated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's halfway there. All right. Well, um, I'm going to grab my wine. I'll let you see it here. Maybe you can describe it to the listeners. Oh, very nice. I was expecting it to be um, yellowish, but it is pinkish. Yeah, it's like a cava rosé. Uh-huh. All right. Very nice. Well, cheers. Cheers. This is great, as always. Yeah, mine too. Very refreshing summer beer. Mine too. If we finish the cava, I might go on to the beer. You know, I have it there in reserve. Frankly, that seems kind of unlikely, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> if it goes like three hours, I just keep drinking. It could happen. Yeah. Let's see where the podcast takes. Let's on. draw it out. Okay. Yeah. So I suggested um, today's paper that we're going to talk about. Uh, and I, I read this as uh, part of a journal club that I'm in here in, in Barcelona. Uh, so this paper, it's a preprint. Uh, and uh, the title is The I-Frame and the S-Frame, How Focusing on the Individual Level Solutions Has Led Behavioral Public Policy Astray, and it's by Nick Chater and George Lowenstein, who are two well-known judgment decision-making uh, researchers. And so, basically, this is a critique of um, of nudging. I think you could say, uh, Alexa, mm-hmm. do you do you care to explain to our listeners what nudging is? I guess that was something that came up for me as I was reading through the paper. So the paper makes a distinction between um, I-frame and S-frame solutions, and so the. The I, I guess, stands for individual and the S stands for system. Um, and the idea is that we've been sort of like misled by by going down this I-frame road, um, which corresponds, I think, to the idea of nudging. So these are like uh, attempts, I think, to make an impact on broad societal problems by changing individuals' behavior. Um, and so like nudging... Um, one of the like examples I think that's common for for nudging is this idea of having people um, defaulted to be organ donors, I guess, and then you have to like you know you have to change the default to not be an organ donor. And the idea is that this like nudge 
that influences an individual person's behavior will accumulate to having some kind of like positive benefit for society, which is that that we'll have way more organ donors or something like that. Um, and then, so this kind of like I-frame solution or nudge is contrasted to the S-frame kinds of solutions, which are more systemic. And actually, I thought that one maybe helpful place to start would be to try to m- make the distinction between these things really clear, because there were some examples where, um, where I was like, does this sounds a little bit like a systemic solution, but it's being um, the the authors of the paper are treating it as an um, an individual solution or an iframe solution. So I think that in general, the solutions where yeah, an individual beha- individuals are being called on to be the solution to a problem is is like an iframe approach, right? And a systemic approach would be like, okay, corporations now have to do certain things, or there's like a like a society wide ban on a certain kind of behavior, like using plastic bags or um, things like taxation. The ones that seem a little bit blurrier to me are like. Um, so for instance, we'll probably get into this in more detail, but like retirement savings plans. Um, so they talk about, um, an iframe solution. So an individual focused solution being that people are by default, uh, required to contribute to their retirement plan or whatever. Um, so I guess I had one question for you, which is like, yeah, does that, um, is it clear why that's an individual um, solution as opposed to a systemic solution. It seems like a policy um, that influences many people um, similarly to the way that like a change in tax policy would influence many people. Um, so there were, yeah, there were some like cases where I thought that distinction was blurry. Yeah. That's interesting that you picked up on that um, because I think this is something that they don't, they aren't particularly explicit about and I can see why they're not. Um, so something that I think of as core to the idea of a nudge that they don't say explicitly is that nudges are non-coercive. So for example, if you default people to be organ donors, it's easy to opt out. Uh, mm-hmm. If you default people to a specific retirement savings plan, it's easy for them to say, no, I'd rather keep my money. So the idea is you're never going to make anybody worse off is the idea. Like at worst, you pay a small cost in uh, time and attention to change away from the default, for example. Uh, But you're never going to coerce somebody into an outcome that they really object to. And maybe you could say like, well, isn't that a little optimistic? What if people forget or don't know that they ought to, that they want to change their retirement savings allocation and then that default is actually quite powerful. Maybe you put them in a situation they don't like. Fair enough, but the goal is supposed to be that if you don't like it, you can switch out. Right. Right. And and the stuff that they talk about is quite a bit more coercive. Right. So you're going to ban plastic bags. That means if I would like a plastic bag, I can't have one. Um, uh-huh. You're going to switch from uh, a retirement savings scheme where people put in what they want to put in and those funds grow and then they take it out at retirement to one where you're coerced to put in a certain amount. You have no choice, and then you get get a defined payment later. So, for example, that's that's the way my U of T plan works. They take mm-hmm. out a lot. They take a lot out a lot of money that otherwise I could be spending, and they put it towards mm-hmm. retirement for me. And perhaps I would prefer not to, 
right? Perhaps I have some information that they don't. Perhaps I know I'm going to die at 50. I'm like, I'd rather be spending that money now. Tough shit, too bad. You get the same deal everybody else gets, right? So Mm -hmm. I, I think this element of coercion is really important and it's something that they kind of elide um, possibly because I think that runs up against some of the objections that people might have to these kind of S-frame systemic interventions. Right. That's what, Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So, so the reason that you think that they might be avoiding that um, piece of maybe the distinction between I-frame and S-frame is that they're sort of advocating for S-frame as the better type of solution, or at least um, often the better solution. And you're saying that one reason that people don't like S-frame is because it forces people to do certain things as opposed to like giving them the option. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So I I think that when we talk about some of these specific examples they give, um, this will be more clear. Uh, But let me just say a little more about their argument overall. And then maybe you can tell me like what you thought of it, Um, because it Mm -hmm. it seems like you were, when we chatted before the show, quite enthusiastic about this. And we're like, wow, I was like really into this paper. Uh Okay. So that's true. Yeah. Uh, So they say, Uh, I'll just uh, read most of the abstract here. Uh, They say, many behavioral scientists propose and test interventions that attack policy problems by seeking to change individual behavior rather than the system in which they operate. Uh, Such I-frame individual-focused interventions, which typically have smaller null effects, uh, that's bad, uh, reduce support for more effective systemic actions such as regulation and taxation. For this reason, researchers advocating iframe solutions may have unwittingly helped promote the interests of corporations who oppose systemic change. Um, so that uh, abstract already highlights the two problems um, that they think are endemic to this nudging research. Problem one, even when iframe interventions are highly effective at changing individual behavior, their policy implications are often modest. That is, if you think about like what is the ultimate like social change that you're trying to make, they don't really do that, um, is, is the argument. And two, iframe interventions may be counterproductive by drawing attention and support away from the kinds of systemic changes required to address most public policy problems. Um, So, for example, they say the green energy nudge crowds out support for a carbon tax by providing false hope that the problem of climate change can be addressed without imposing costlier but immeasurably more effective policies. So that's kind of their argument in a nutshell. Um, And I'm curious to hear what you made of it. Yeah, so... um so for the first part of the argument, I have um, less of an opinion. So this idea that iframe interventions are not are not particularly effective, or um, or they don't have strong policy implications. At first glance, I saw that as like maybe implausible. Like I don't know this research well, um, but uh, yeah, just like intuitively, uh, especially these kinds of like defaulting. Um, types of policies gets confusing because policy is usually paired with S-frame, but um, like I-level solutions that default people to um, an option that's more conservative and then they're allowed to like choose out of that or something like that. Those, they seem like a great idea to me. Um, And yeah, my sort of like very cursory understanding of that literature is that those defaults like work quite well. Um, so I don't know how, I don't know the, the literature well on how effective these things are. The, the second part I found to be particularly interesting because um, it like resonated with me. So when I like read the, the abstract of the article, um, the first thing that I thought of is actually something that they get to quite briefly 
um, later in the paper, which is like some of these sort of more um, or social psyche intervention type things that I'm more familiar with. So the first thing that came to my mind was the idea of like mindset interventions, right? Um, and so I'll sometimes talk with like either mindset or um, power posing for me falls into like a similar category where if I talk to people who are not not in psychology and I roll my eyes at like a mindset intervention as a way for improving people's academic performance or reducing inequities in academic performance or power posing as a way to, um, I guess like, uh, combat sexism or other isms within the workplace or something like that. Um, when I roll my eyes, sometimes people who are not in psychology will say like, what's the harm, you know, like, um, even if it's not having like this huge impact, um, on these social problems that they're it's supposed to be addressing. Like maybe it makes people feel good. Maybe it makes people feel empowered. And, you know, even, even if it's just like making people feel better or making a difference for some individuals, um, what, yeah, what's the, what's the harm in these kinds of sort of nudgy types of interventions? And my answer is that it detracts from the real problem, right? So like, you know, you're basically saying like you as an individual are the one who is responsible for, you know, dealing with sexism or inequities in education or whatever. Um, and so it seems to be like placing the blame and the burden upon um, individuals who are sort of the um, like victims of these problems. Um, so that's why I don't like them. And that's why I initially like found the the paper um, really uh, the message in the paper really appealing. Um, and then as I, as I went through and read through the paper, I just think it raises a ton of interesting questions. So there are some, some points where I would push back and disagree. Um, but in general, I think this is, uh, maybe like a question that, um, at least social psychologists, I feel haven't been, we haven't been asking ourselves this enough historically. Yeah, and this that point that the paper makes. Um, so the the problem too of uh, the focusing on the individual kind of distracts from focusing on the more important and influential uh, social level features. Um, that's something that previous guest Jesse Single talked about in in his book, The Quick Fix, um, mm -hmm. and uh, he specifically talked about um, these. Uh, I forget whether it was mindset interventions or grit, but it was in an educational context, uh -huh. right? Trying to solve these kind of deep-seated problems of underperforming uh, schools or students by like kind of a quick fix of, oh, if we just change their mindset. And the argument that he makes is that it distracts from actually tackling things that matter. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I think there's... there. That does seem at least superficially convincing to me. Um, and I, I think, well, to me, the important question is like, okay, well, what's the alternative, right? So you might say, um, sure, I acknowledge that, you know, the individual level is focusing there is going to be less effective than focusing at the systemic level, but we have limited ability to affect things at the systemic level, right? And and so the important part of their argument is that, well, it really is important that we're focusing on the individuals because it means that we focus on the systemic level less, right? I think that's a crucial part of what they're trying to argue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, and your point about like, okay, what do we have 
the sort of like power to influence. So in our in our notes, you um, pointed me to a thread um, on Twitter that was written by Oleg Erminsky. Um, and one of the points that Oleg brings up is this idea that um, one conclusion that you might draw from this paper is uh, that there's no point in trying to make individual people's existence slightly better um, if you're not like you, you should always be prioritizing changing the system and you shouldn't expend any effort in making individual experiences better because that would imply that you are sort of accepting the system. Um, and he argues that that's not the case, right? Like that, uh, that you can do both, right? So you can be concerned about the system and you can agree that there are systemic problems, but you can recognize that maybe the system is not going to change quickly. And so you can try to provide solutions that help to make individual people's lives a bit better in the meantime. Yeah. So I think he talks about it as like a lot of these nudge interventions are like picking up a $10 bill off the sidewalk. It's basically free right. money. Why not do it? Right. Right. And, and when we talked about this in journal club, I think a lot of the skepticism focused there too, about like the extent to which there really is this trade-off between the individual and the systemic level, because that is, I, I think is a crucial part of the argument. So maybe we go through some of their, examples and see like whether we we find that convincing um so the the first one that they bring up is climate change um and the idea of a personal carbon footprint and what they claim in the paper and i haven't actually checked all of these references uh but what they say is that the idea of the personal carbon footprint was actually uh promoted by the energy company bp um, and so that mm -hmm. basically they were worried about tougher regulation. Um, and they thought, hey, if we can get people to make this into a matter of like individual choices and behavior, maybe that's going to be better for us. Like maybe, you know, people won't tell us we're not allowed to uh, engage in certain like carbon polluting activities, or maybe they won't tax us more or whatever it is. Right. Um, and so that they invested a lot of kind of PR energy into getting people to think about what can you on a personal level do to reduce your energy consumption and that that was a strategic move um, on, on their part. Um, and the, uh, the paper gives some examples, some uh, examples from research that, yeah, indeed, when you get people to think about individual level uh, contributions to uh, fighting climate change, like what are, what are you personally doing? How are you personally reducing your energy consumption? That they then become less supportive of socially like broad interventions, like for example, carbon taxes. Um, so that's mm -hmm. that's that's an argument that at least on the individual level that these things are trading off against each other. Um, so yeah, what what did you think of that example? I think that so. This is a case where they're the way that they like are defining individual um, versus system. It seems a, a little bit like it maps on to um, like, I guess, citizens versus corporations, um, which I don't think has to be 100% the case. But here they're making the argument, I think, that um, it should be the solutions to these problems have to target corporations instead of targeting individuals. Um, and that the corporations are trying to shirk their responsibilities by placing the responsibility on individuals. Um, and like probably most people who are not the heads of corporations, I love those kinds of um, solutions or those kinds of perspectives, right? Like it's, it implies that I am not to blame for any of these 
issues and it's like I'm pretty helpless to solve them um, and that instead I can blame billionaires and you know CEOs and stuff like that um, and I think there's some like legitimacy to that approach um, so I, I remember watching a, it was like a, a graduation address um, that Naomi Klein gave so Naomi Klein is a, a, a climate activist she's Canadian actually um, and she uh, gave this address at a school called the College of the Atlantic, which is in Maine. Um, and she said that basically um, students shouldn't be trying to solve climate change on their own. Uh, and initially I was sort of like surprised by that suggestion in some ways because I guess it seems to like take away individual agency from these like new graduates who you're, you know, a typical commencement speech would be like, you're going to be the change in the world. Right. And she, I guess was, was suggesting like, no, you can't do this alone. And now I see her comment as like sort of a response perhaps to the kinds of patterns that the authors of this paper are documenting among um, corporations where, yeah, corporations seem to be sort of like, um, initiating or perpetuating this kind of messaging that places the responsibility on individuals. Um, so yeah. So like I said, like I, I, I think that there's some legitimacy to that argument and, um, I certainly like, don't like the idea of, um, corporations shifting the blame onto me. Um, I also wonder if there is like, it's possible to sort of go too far in the other direction. Um, so uh, I talked about this kind of thing in a seminar class that I taught last semester. Um, and I saw that some of my students, their take on climate change was obviously this is something that we can't have any impact on. This is a problem that's caused by corporations. They should be the ones solving it. Like it's the billionaire's fault or whatever. And my initial reaction to that was like, oh, it seems like a whole lot of us could be like absolving ourselves of any responsibility for these kinds of problems um, by sort of naming the most responsible person and then saying like they're the they're the cause, not me. That that seems clearer to me in the case of climate change, but I think it starts to become more problematic when we start talking about things like, for instance. Um, systemic racism, where uh, the idea that like, oh, I'm not responsible for systemic racism, therefore, there's really nothing that I can do um, to uh, have any kind of impact on this um, feels like to me, it starts to become more problematic. Um, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that the, the racism point is interesting, and we should get back to it. Mm -hmm. um, I think when it comes to climate change, I'm generally a believer in the idea that you know, some of the stuff that gets promoted is like, you know, this will be good for the environment. It's like, just take shorter showers. It's like, no, that's, mm -hmm. you know, this is not going to make a difference. Right. Um, I, I do think that by like underplaying the role of, you know, individual, I, I don't know about consumer be level behavior, but things that you could do with your life in order to work on this problem. Like to see, there's this kind of passivity of like, almost like doomerism, you know, oh, well, you know, it's insoluble, the corporations are bad and we're screwed. Mm -hmm. That that also seems bad to me. Um, mm -hmm. It seems to really, um, I mean, if you really believe that, then, then you do end up kind of doing nothing. Um, mm -hmm. I also think that there is um, a lack of recognition 
of what is politically possible, at least in in the U.S., which is which is what that kind of the system that I know best, um, and of the kind of cost real people of some of these policies that quote unquote just get corporations to pay. So, so for example, you know, if you carbon tax, you're like, okay, well, uh, industries that emit a lot of carbon have to pay an extra tax. Okay. Well, that means prices go up for consumers, right? Like it's corporations pass those things along. Uh, and that means you're paying more for gas and people really hate paying more for gas. They really hate it when their power bills go up. Um, in Washington state, which is, you know, quite a blue state, like a solidly liberal state, they tried twice to pass by ballot initiative um, a carbon pricing scheme in which uh, companies would have to pay a carbon tax, and then those monies would get allocated in various ways. In one iteration, they said, we'll make it revenue neutral, so we'll reduce the sales tax to compensate. In another iteration, they said, we'll spend it on fighting climate change. Um, those initi initiatives both lost by pretty substantial margins. So in 2016, it failed 40-60. In 2018, it failed 57-43. Um, sorry, I flipped those numbers in a confusing way, um, but large margins against, right? In a very liberal mm -hmm. state. So you could say like, okay, this is all well and good that you think that we should tax carbon. Um, and there is a little bit of like dodging and saying like, well, it's the bad corporations or it's politicians who are spineless, right? Um, so in a popular write-up of this article, there's this quote, politicians by contrast have preferred to bypass the carbon price, move straight to the pain-free pain nudging. And it's like, oh, the politicians are doing something wrong. It's like, no, they're reflecting what people want. People hate carbon pricing, right? And you could say like, well, that's dumb. They shouldn't. They should be into carbon pricing, but they're not. Right. So like at a certain point, you have to live with the world that you're in and recognize that at least in the U.S., you're not going to fucking pass this shit. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, maybe you could say, well, the job of psychologists is to work on a longer term plan where you convince people that carbon pricing is great. I mean, can we do that? Do you think that's is that feasible for us? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, like the the condemning corporations, right, by saying like they are only going to act in their own best interest. They're only interested in their bottom line. Um, and as a result, these like problems are caused by them and they're the only solution. And also like treating this sort of interest in their bottom line as like a sign that, that corporations are evil and things like that. I, I mean, obviously corporations are different than individuals because they have just like a magnitudes more power. Um, but that sort of like, you can't expect, I think there's, um, a message in this paper or like a recurring theme in this paper. Like you can't expect people to be acting against their own best interests. And so like a lot of these nudges are like doomed to fail and we should be considering human nature when we, um, are enacting these like S level changes. Um, but I guess there's like a, um, maybe like a false dichotomy or like a they're exaggerating the difference between the processes that are happening in individuals and the processes that are happening within corporations. You know, it's like the corporations are sort of also acting in their own best interest. And um, I don't know. I mean, that's, I guess that's the point of policies. And I think what the authors of the paper would argue is like, you can look to different countries and the, the policies are different and the outcomes are different. Um, so like, 
uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that this, um, this framing of, well, it's convince individuals or uh, implement regulations that are pretty heavy handed. This is like classic liberal blind spot stuff to me because it's corporations are bad. Regulation is good. We need to restrain them. And that's true in some domains. But like, I, I do think that individual choices matter. And sometimes private enterprise comes up with some really game-changing stuff. So for example, like anybody's individual decision to buy a gas car and an electric car isn't that consequential. But like collectively, uh, transportation is a big source of emissions, right? So if you can really convince somebody to, uh, sorry, if you can convince lots of people that they want to buy electric cars, that actually does have a big impact on our collective emissions. And I think mm -hmm. Tesla you know, Elon Musk is a dick, bad corporation, maybe they're racist, whatever. They convinced people electric cars were cool, right? And that that really, I think, set us on a path where now every major car company is like, we have to make electric cars. Mm -hmm. And I think that is huge, right? And that collectively can have an enormous impact on our emissions. So you could say, well, maybe the best thing that a behavioral scientist could do is go work for Tesla's marketing department, you know, convince people that electric cars are things that they want to buy. Yeah, that's individual level. But if you get the ball rolling such that like electric cars become something that's a mainstream product when before they were just for like weird eco enthusiasts, that's a way in which you really can affect this big change in how much carbon we're emitting. And you could do it without making anybody do anything that they don't want to do, right? It's just like, hey, these electric cars are better. Buy one. And people are like, great. I will. I like them. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of thing that I see is missing here from this picture. Yeah. So this like um, this idea that individuals um, can't, can't have like an impact or something like that through their own actions. I mean, I think what somebody like Naomi Klein would say and maybe this is what you're suggesting with like, okay, if you can, if you could have an impact through electric cars sales or something, maybe this is the approach you could take is that maybe, maybe you can't have an impact through your own individual choices, but you could have an impact by trying to sort of like foster collective change in some way or promote that, um, which feels a little bit more optimistic and like maybe a path out of the sort of apathetic response that you might have if you were just like, well, like, I'm an individual. I'm not going to have any impact. Um, this problem is not my problem kind of thing. Um, but in terms of like the, you, you noted some ways in which, uh, it seems like you could actually like have an impact, especially if, especially if you got a lot of people to engage in a certain kind of behavior. Um, and something that was interesting to me was when I started reading the paper, um, one of the first things I was thinking about was, um, okay, like what are what are domains in which iframe solutions would be useful, right? So like the paper is sort of arguing as behavioral scientists were advocating for iframe solutions way too much. Um, I I definitely agree that we typically offer iframe solutions, I think because of the methods that are available to us and things like that. Um, and so I was like, does that mean that, you know, we're doomed to be offering crappy solutions all the time, or are there cases where iframe solutions are really useful? And the first thought that I had was individual health behaviors, right? Like, um, and I guess I was thinking about the difference between maybe a case where an iframe versus an S frame solution would be useful thinking about, okay, well, 
does an individual, can they actually impact the situation? And I was like, okay, well, with my personal health, my behavior, I assume, has quite a big impact on my personal health. But the next example that they gave in the article is the example of obesity, which kind of surprised me at first because I was thinking like, this is a case where iframe solutions are going to be useful. So what did you think of their discussion of obesity? Yeah, I'm I'm very convinced by the idea that if your your endpoint is obesity specifically and not say is somebody in overall better shape, you know, cardio cardiovascularly or something because they go and work out three times a week. But like literally, can we get people to lose weight? Is just really really hard. Like people try really hard to lose weight and by and large, they fail. So any of these little interventions that are like, can we nudge people into going to the gym more? Can we get them to eat smaller portions? Like, I'm just really skeptical that those are going to have like a long-term effect on weight specifically. And I think they give some sites to say that the there's really not good evidence that that's the case. And and I buy that. Like it might still be good for you to go to the gym, right? Say you're you're just as fat, but you're in better shape. Um, I I think you know let's not myopically focus only on weight. But I think if you're talking about like you know we want people to be less fat, that that's really tough. I mean people spend insane amounts of money collectively on diets and uh, exercise programs and you know, weight loss books or whatever. And on average, we just keep getting fatter. So it it doesn't seem to be something that really responds well to individual effort because, and that's weird because it seems like that's kind of the paradigmatic case in which it ought to, right? Like, don't you control your eating behavior? And yet, you know, here we are and it doesn't seem to. Right. I guess it was appealing to me as a domain because I was like, okay, um, what are cases where my individual choices, I can see the impact. And I was like, okay, my individual health behavior. Um, but yeah, I have the same, the same reaction as you, which is that this is mostly anecdotal. I don't know this research well at all, but, um, but I have tried to lose weight at one point in my life and it's like really hard. Like it takes so much work and yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's echoed in other people's experience too. Um, it's interesting. So I had the question of um, whether the the whole like 10,000 steps idea is improving people's health. Um, and I know, so I guess like many people now have like step counters on their like watches and phones or whatever. Um, and I guess the sort of default advice, I don't have one of these, but is that you should get 10,000 steps a day. And it seems to weirdly affect people's behavior. Like my parents, if they like go for a walk and they didn't turn their like steps thing on, they're like, oh shit, maybe I have to go for another walk so that my like my thing counts, my 10,000 steps or whatever. And, you know, like that seems at least at face value to me to be a sort of like incentive that seems to affect people's behavior. And it seems great that people would be walking 10,000 steps a day, I guess. Um, But I noticed like an article that was uh, written in the Atlantic um, by Frank Pascal. Um, And this is cited in the paper that we read for today. Um, Yeah. Starts out by saying that this like idea of 10,000 steps is silly. Um, So I guess that they would put this in the same kind of category as like crappy eye level solutions. Yeah. So I, 
I my understanding of the research on SIP counters or like fitness trackers is that uh, they don't lead to long term weight loss. I mean, again, though, it's like, well, is that the endpoint you care about? Right, right. right. It's maybe just good on its own terms to get out and move around. I think that seems very plausible. Um, the problem is that, you know, you fucking eat a muffin and you've put all those calories back, right? It's just oh, ridiculous. I know, it's so cruel. Like, <laughs> exercise is so useless in the face of delicious food. Exactly. There's no amount of exercise that you could reasonably do unless you're like willing to just devote your entire life to exercising. But if you're like a normal person with a job, there's no way uh-huh. that you can exercise enough to just like eat whatever you want unless you're a genetic freak. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And also, I feel like, I don't know, I mean, I feel like this sort of like obsession with, um, with exercising so much that you can eat what you want or something starts to get into like disordered eating territory and stuff like that. But yeah. And besides, you don't need to lose weight, Alexa, you look great. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I I think I'm, I'm 100% on board. With their, um, this is just if if you're if what you want uh, is weight loss, that these individual level nudging solutions are just not going to get you there. But then, what is the policy that does say you know you you can implement an S frame policy? What is that going to be? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but um, are there? I guess the the author's approach would be to compare to other cultures, right? So, are there? Are there big cultural differences in, okay, let's say we are focusing on obesity, which I agree is, um, mm, you know, a small part of the picture of people's health. Um, but yeah, are there other other cultures where this is not an issue? And so are there like systemic factors that exist in those cultures um, that can account for those differences? You know, as I understand it, there's definitely cross-cultural differences in obesity rates. Mm-hmm. But there's not a ton of agreement about why. Um, there's some uh, evidence, I think, that like exposure to a quote unquote Western diet, which is like basically McDonald's, uh, uh-huh. has the effect on obesity rates you can imagine, right? Uh-huh. But then, okay, so say that that's true. What, is your solution ban hamburgers? I mean, I really don't get like what are you literally going to do? And that was mm-hmm. that gets to my frustration at times with this paper yeah. is like, okay, well, what's your S frame solution here? Like, it seems like yeah. we kind of don't know, except for the really obvious stuff that it's not going to fly to ban, right? You can't say no hamburgers, no muffins, no sodas. I mean, you could mm-hmm. tax those things conceivably, but even mm-hmm. that, I don't I don't think people are going to – eventually you have to get, you know, voters to say, this is what we want, right? We live in a democracy. You don't get to just impose your preferred policies like as a philosopher king. They have to go for it. And I don't think most people are going to be down with a hamburger tax. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think this is another place where it sort of becomes too easy to blame the corporations, I guess. So one thing that they sort of suggest in the article is that, um, yeah, corporations are sort of like deliberately making their food um, extra like addictive or extra delicious. And that's like making it more unhealthy. And then people are choosing that food. But I agree with you that um, if you ask people do they want to like give up these foods um that probably many people would say no um i'm not trying to give up butter that's right so i'm sympathetic to the idea that in the u.s we really subsidize corn production for example 
Um, <laughs> and that makes sugars very cheap, um, well, corn syrup. Um, mm-hmm. And it makes uh, beef very cheap because uh, cows are fed corn. Um, and it's, you know, there's not a ton of justification to me to say, yeah, we should take public money, like our tax dollars, and give it to people who grow corn. It's like, why? Mm-hmm. No, it's because they're, you know, politically influential. That seems really bad. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like, as you can see with this inflation stuff that's happening, let's say that we stop subsidizing corn and the price of beef goes up by 25% or 50%. People are going to flip the fuck out, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I don't think it's politically tenable for uh, a politician to say, yeah, well, it's for your own good because it's not good for you, right? It's like no fucking way. So I think, again, like you really have to convince the people first. And that seems like a heavy lift. Like, do we as psychologists have the tools to convince people, not the people who already agree with us and are sort of like the upper middle class, you know, I worry about the uh, climate consequences of eating beef and it should be much more expensive and I only buy the humanely raised stuff, but like regular people that, yeah, you should be paying you know, 50% more for your burger. Are you excluding yourself from regular people? You are? I am not. Such an <laughs> I recognize, I recognize my elite <laughs> status. You know, maybe you, 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 you arguably are a woman of the people, Alexa. <laughs> I think you much more than I. I don't know whether to take that as a, as a, a compliment or an insult. It's a true compliment. I, you know, I feel like such a coastal elite and I don't even live on the coast. You live on the coast more than I do, actually. Hmm. Oh, weird. Closer, closer to the coast. Hey, um, speaking of things that are bad for you, I want more booze. How are you doing? Um, sounds like a good time to take a break. Welcome back. We're sponsored again this week by Finding Five. Finding Five is a tech nonprofit web platform where academic researchers can create and run online behavioral research studies in the cloud. So their website is www.finding5.com, where you can create and run psychological experiments. Alexa, you had the chance to mess around with this a little bit. Give me your impressions. Yeah, so um, I played around with this and tried sort of like designing a simple study. Um, I hadn't done much programming of studies, especially not like um, studies where you would be doing sort of like complicated stimulus presentation stuff um, since grad school, but I found it pretty easy to pick up. Um, Something that's kind of cool is that you can play around with the platform for free. Um, So you can make as many studies as you want, um, but then you can also use the platform to recruit participants, and that's when you start to to pay for using Finding Five. Those rates are pretty low because they're a nonprofit, and they're just really trying to pay their bills. But uh, if you use our promo code, uh, it... uh it gets even cheaper uh, because you get with our promo code a complimentary one month pro subscription that comes with some premium features and a hundred free participants. Um, so that that um, free pro subscription is good for a month. So the best way to do it is to make the study first, and then once you're like, okay, I want to collect the data, uh, then redeem the code. Uh, so those uh, those 
codes uh, you can find in our show notes. I'll just tell them to you real quick. There's two different ones for the US and EU. So for the US, it would be FF-US-2P4B. For the EU, it would be FF-EU-2P4B. Again, uh, their website, www.finding5.com. You can find those promo codes on our website. Go ahead and check that out. If you do any research like this, I think it could be a really powerful tool for you. And thank you again to Finding Five for sponsoring our show. Alexa, do we have any any follow-up or anything that you wanted to bring up? No, nope, I think you covered it. Wow, thank you. Um, I, I do want to give a shout-out to uh, we had an episode, uh, I think a few back, about the value-free ideal. And we um, talked about this paper by Liam Bright. Um, and he uh, he said on Twitter was scared to listen to uh, the episode because he thought that we might criticize him. Um, and then eventually he gathered the courage to listen to the episode and he sort of like live tweeted it while he was listening, which I thought was very cool. So we'll drop a link to that. Um, in the show notes, um, I hope that uh, it was not too traumatic an experience for Liam, who seems very <laughs> sensitive <laughs> in a way that's probably not good for an academic philosopher, where I think you get criticized a lot. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, that was a fun experience. And it's the first time that I've seen somebody, like somebody where we've talked about their thing on our show, and then in kind of real time, they're responding to what, yeah, what we yeah, say. Yeah, that's really cool. Before we get back to the content, uh, if you'd like to contact us, our show's Email address, fourbeerspod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at fourbeerspod, where you can at mention or DM us. Um, our website is fourbeers.com. You can find any of our episodes there. You could drop us a line there as well if you like. Uh, so we always love hearing from listeners. We've been getting some good listener feedback in the last few weeks, and please just keep those coming. Uh, we try to respond to everybody uh, who writes to us. And uh, yeah, if you're enjoying the show, if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, we enjoy it and it helps people find the show. So please go ahead and do that if you're if you're enjoying your listening experience. All right. So back to what nudging can and can't do. We had been talking about obesity. Wait, Yoel, are you drinking beer now? Oh, shit. No, because the rosé wasn't done. <laughs> I'm sorry. I forgot about the beers. I always fucking do this, Alexa. I'm, this is, this is an individual level failure where I feel like a nudge really could have helped. Yeah. This is not a systemic problem. No, no. This is a UL problem. No, I'm still the rosé. I'm still drinking the rosé. Yeah. I don't have much update either. I'm also still drinking. Despite the fact that I'm not teaching, it is still noon on a weekday. And I feel like two beers at noon uh, is socially unacceptable. So we had been talking about um, obesity. You brought up before the break this idea of systemic racism and maybe whether that undermines an idea of personal responsibility um, for uh, racial bias or racist outcomes or whatever. So I'm curious like, whether you would say a little more about that logic and how that would work. Right. So I guess the context in which that comes up for me most often is like um, within my job and and – so like I understand how this can get discouraging, right? So for instance, um, I would say that there's a high amount of consensus. I actually know this. Um, there's a high amount of consensus in my department that we would like to be a more diverse department, right? Um, and so we have these conversations about how we can increase diversity in our department by hiring, like through hiring practices and through graduate student recruitment practices, right? Um, and 
then, you know, it gets to this like conversation where we're like, oh, but we don't get many applicants or, and I think this is where it becomes maybe more controversial. We get applicants, but they're not like qualified in the ways that we typically think of as, you know, making an applicant really, um, uh, meritorious or like deserving of the position or something like that. Um, and so like, I guess sometimes I think that people's reaction is, okay, these problems are systemic racism is a bigger problem than us. Um, and that, you know, like as an individual working within an academic department, um, I can't change, I can't solve systemic racism. I can't change it. And then I think the, the more problematic step is then to say like, okay, there's really nothing I can do. Um, you know, I'm not going to change the fact that maybe like, um, that there are, that many black people wouldn't want to work at the university of Alabama, for instance. Um, you know, like that I'm, I was not at the university of Alabama, um, throughout its history. So like, there's nothing I can do about that or something like that. Um, and I do think that that kind of approach is, um, I don't know. Like, I think we're absolving ourselves a little bit too much of personal responsibility. I think there's like quite a bit we can do as um, people who are professors at universities um, in terms of like acknowledging and addressing these kinds of issues. Um, and, you know, like, uh, I guess as a more general statement, I think that it's it's possible that when we start to think about um, an inability to sort of like solve a problem as an individual as a reason to sort of give up on it. Um, that, that seems like a shame to me. I think there are probably like lots of ways in which we can, um, do things that matter as individuals that aren't, aren't solving societal problems. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess one part of that I am more skeptical about and, and one part I'm a hundred percent on board with. So the more skeptical, take I have, I guess, is that, you know, are, are the people who are talking about systemic racism really the people who are then going to be convinced by that, that they, you know, don't need to do anything? I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot of overlap between the people who are super worried about systemic racism and who do want to do something. And I think the people who don't want to do something in this case are the people who are going to say like, oh, it's all fine. And, you know, everybody has the same opportunities, something, something. Um I do feel like the more broadly this kind of like doomerism about we're all screwed, the U.S. is going to hell. Like I think of this as a very U.S. thing. You know, this is a dystopian hell state, and why even bother? That is sort of, I mean, it's it's broader than just the racism thing, right? And and I I saw some of that in the like after the leaked Supreme Court, you know, draft mm -hmm. decision. Um, of people just being like, well, I quit, I give up. And that's not, I find that to be very unuseful, right? And if if this paper convinces people that they individually can't do anything about important problems, I do think that would be a really bad conclusion to draw just in general. Um, because there's, I do think there's stuff that we can individually do. And I don't think even that the authors of the paper would want us to to think that, right? I think that there are cases like, no, we as behavioral scientists ought to be focusing our energies on other things, right? So they they do, I think, think that we can do something. They just think that we're focusing our energy in the wrong direction. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's something that I'd like to talk about a bit is just sort of, um, I guess, from a practitioner of behavioral science, I guess, perspective. Um, yeah, what the ideal solution is. So, so they, they make a distinction in the paper between doing research that advocates for eye level solutions, uh, right? So this would be like research testing the efficacy of like a nudge or something like that, maybe like a mindset intervention um, and research that informs how we would create S level solutions, right? So um, what kind of tax or policy would have the greatest impact based on what we know from the behavioral sciences. Um, and so I think that one thing that the authors are arguing for is that we should do more of the latter, right? We should be doing research that informs the creation of S level solutions. Um, and I guess I have a bit of a sense of what that is, but um, I don't think that's a, an easy task um, and then, yeah, another another question that I was left with after reading the paper was, um, yeah, is it is it ever useful to be developing eye level solutions? So, yeah, I mentioned that um, my my initial intuition was that like, oh, maybe eye level solutions would be good for personal health behaviors. We've talked about how maybe that's not the case, specifically maybe in the context of obesity. Um, I wondered about other situations. So, for instance, like. Um, maybe relationships researchers, you know, that seems like an, a domain where my behavior and the, uh, any kind of like problem that I would be trying to solve are like closely linked, right? I, I'm sure there are systemic things that influence relationship quality and things like that too, but I think our behavior probably does a lot. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What do you think about, are there, are there areas where we would be um, investing our time and resources while developing eye level solutions for like certain kinds of problems. Yeah. So I think individual mental health, um, I, there's obviously systemic things that work there as well, but I think mm -hmm. that the CBT works right. And, uh, that is kind of almost a definition of an individual level solution. Um, Sorry, cognitive behavioral therapy. So reframing the way that you think about um, obstacles, challenges, problems, setbacks in your life. Um, that's 100% focused on the individual, but we know that it makes people better off on average. Um, I think relationships, which you brought up, is a great example. And I do think that personal health behaviors, if you're not focused just on weight loss, are a good example, mm -hmm. right? Like, I think you can improve your health by being more active, even if you don't lose weight doing that. And I think that's good for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we can nudge people to do more of that, then we make them better off. Um, I think that they underplay, honestly, the effect of these retirement savings interventions. Uh, so, uh, this uh, the, this famous paper by uh, Richard Thaler and Shlomo Benarzi, where they basically defaulted, they with consent defaulted people into saving percentages of future raises that they get. Um, and at the firm where they did that, that was really effective. Now you might say like, well, why hasn't that been scaled up more widely? And I think that's a good question. Um, you know, like that seemed to work at that one firm. Why haven't we seen that kind of rolled out more broadly? As far as I know, we haven't. 
Um, and then in the current paper, uh, the authors say, well, also the problem is that people can then take money out of their retirement savings account, um, or they can borrow against it or something like that. That I'm a little more mixed on, right? They call that leakage and they're like, that's bad. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, if it's the difference between losing your house and not to be able to take some out of your 401k, I think sometimes people make the right choice, right? And by restricting their freedom, you're definitely going to make some people worse off. So I'm less convinced about that, that, that that's really a problem rather than people kind of rationally choosing what's best for them. And there I would hesitate to be too paternalistic about it. So I think in general, I think retirement savings is an example of where we actually can have a big impact on people's outcomes, particularly given that like defined benefit pensions where it's like you get promised X dollars per year until you die after retirement in the U.S., it just seems crazy to think that they're coming back, right? So maybe as a long-term plan, you're like, yeah, our 50-year plan is to bring back these kinds of pensions. But like in the short term, for the people who are going to be retiring, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years, it just doesn't seem feasible. So then you have to think about like, well, what else are you going to do? Which gets back to my critique of some of these things of like, they're like, well, we should be doing this thing that's politically impossible. It's like, okay, well, but we live in the reality we live in. So what should we actually do? Yeah, that was another situation where the S-level solution was like, uh, the corporation should be putting money into your retirement plan. And then the I-level solution was like, you should be doing it. And they were like, yeah, it should be the S-solution. And I was like, great. <laughs> right, right. Somebody else should fan. do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the one other one that jumped out at me here is um, healthcare in the US. And mm-hmm. I'm actually curious of your perspective as a cross-border person. Um, mm-hmm. So th- they say the high cost of healthcare in the US is a problem. Uh, this is just a quote. Um, the US healthcare industry promotes an iframe perspective that high healthcare costs stem from poor health, which itself depends on individual fallibility. The message is conveyed through actions such as the provision of rewards for exercise, despite little evidence that such incentives impact health. Healthcare is expensive and low quality in the U.S. because it has not been possible to build a political consensus required to make the difficult choices needed to bring down costs and use the savings to increase equity and quality. The world provides a number of different possible models of healthcare systems that provide better services at far lower costs than does the Byzantine health system in the U.S. The key to lowering healthcare costs is to move toward one of the systems proven to work. So here's my impression as somebody who's lived both in the U.S. and Canada— I'm sure on average you're better off in Canada. I'm worse off in Canada. Unambiguously, like I had better healthcare in the US. Like I had more services available. I got them more quickly. Um, I, I think very rarely or never paid out of pocket for anything. I was one of the lucky people with good insurance. And if you're one of those people, like it's much better in the US. And I've talked to other expats who've had similar experiences of in Canada, you know, you wait a long time for anything that's not an emergency. Does that amount to saying that like um, there's just like more inequities in healthcare in the U.S.? So like you were at the top of the pile in the U.S. and so you got good healthcare, but in Canada there's like um, it's flatter. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, I wonder if you've had a similar experience because you obviously grew up in Canada and you came to the U.S. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... Uh, I'm fortunate in that I haven't had um, to really heavily rely um, on healthcare in either place. Um, I will say that, like, knowing people who don't have good insurance in the U.S. 
Um, yeah, it's very like shocking to me the kinds of, of things that people end up having to resort to when they have health issues. So I've had like I've known friends who um, either they have like crappy insurance, which includes like insurance for graduate students. Right. Um, where they like need to get a tooth removed because it's infected and they have to like use it. I know people who have used GoFundMe's to have a tooth removed um, and to deal with a gunshot wound and to deal with a stab wound because they didn't like they couldn't their insurance didn't cover those things or they didn't have insurance or something like that. And like that just blows my mind that like you can this friend of mine got like basically shot by like as a um i think was like a a casualty a passerby whatever i don't know and got hit by a bullet and like it was like on him to pay for his health care in that situation like yeah i don't know um i would definitely i definitely prefer the Canadian system, not surprisingly. Man, this just reinforces all this things that Canadians think about the U.S. It's like this nightmare <laughs> yeah. dystopia where you get shot and stabbed and they're responsible for the bill. Right. Are your friends just really unlucky? What's with all this mayhem? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean... I, I think, you know, if you if you push me on it, of course, I prefer the more egalitarian system, too. I guess my point is just like, they sort of very readily gloss over the idea that you are definitely going to have to deal with a large group of people, not the majority, but a substantial group of people who would be made worse off. And that's tough, right? Convincing those people, your healthcare is going to get substantially worse, which it certainly did for me in order to make things better for for everybody else. But I mean that's true of any um policy shift that moves towards something more egalitarian, right? Like, you know, corporations are not going to want to be taxed at a higher rate, rich people aren't going to want to be taxed at a higher rate, like anything that reduces inequality will piss off some people who are benefiting from that. Yeah. I guess it's that I think there's enough Americans who have good health care that it's not just like, oh, we'll just tax the billionaires. It's like, yeah, right? right. So it's not like a, f- a one percenter issue. No, no. Yeah. One thing that I found interesting about their discussion of the the healthcare stuff. Um, so they sort of like condemn the idea of incentivizing exercise and things like that. Um, and I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what my brother thinks about this. So my brother's a um, nurse practitioner. He works in Canada. Um, and he's like really interested in basically like the idea of prevention, which I think is like a popular idea in healthcare and medicine, um, where like rather than, you know, investing a lot in treating serious problems and disorders and diseases, um, that it's like better for um, the system to invest in people's health early on. Right. So like try to keep people healthy, try to get them exercising early, um, eating well, things like that. And that that sounds like an individual level solution. Um, I think it can be systemic. Right. So you can change systemic factors that make it easier for people to exercise or make it easier for people to eat well and things like that. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. 
the the idea of um preventative medicine as opposed to sort of like dealing with problems once they already exist um that sounds like a good thing to me and and some of that seems to rely on yeah like i said i don't know if it's individual level um but like yeah individual behaviors i guess yeah, I mean, I, I think this gets to like the kind of blurriness of the iframe, S-frame distinction mm-hmm. in some cases, right? I mean, kind of like if you're talking about health, it's sort of by definition an ultimately individual level question, right? Like mm-hmm. public health is the health of like lots of individuals added up. And then if you're like, okay, well, what improves that? Um, they say that giving incentives for gym attendance doesn't. Okay, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I don't know that research, right? But you could say, mm-hmm. okay, well, what's your social, your S-frame solution to that? Is it like the government should give everybody a free gym membership, let's say? Well, you can look at that as just a stronger incentive, right? We're going to make the cost of gym free. I guess the strongest incentive would be like you get in trouble, Right, they they send the cops to you. Like exactly, right. Yeah. You've been shirking at the gym lately, ma'am. Uh, we're gonna have to walk uh-huh. you down there right now and watch you run on the treadmill for fifty minutes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, still kind of individual level incentives. So I I don't know. I feel like what they're saying here is just that these specific nudge incentives aren't strong enough or something, which I could totally buy. Right. Mm-hmm. It might be that the people who are motivated to exercise are going to do it regardless of whether they get a little bit of a discount on their employee health plan when they do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, as like, I don't know, I feel like a little bit out of sync with the spirit of this because I'm like, man, you know what's great for gym attendance is having a ton of gyms and having them be really cheap. And I, I think that's capitalism. Right, that's lots of gyms opening up and competing with with each other on price. Like Toronto had this explosion of gyms where it was like all of a sudden, gym on every corner, like pay twenty five dollars a month. It was amazing. And like if you believe that people respond to price incentives, which I mean, why a priori that would be my belief, right? That that yeah. that's what I would think going in. Then that's got to be good for gym attendance. It's easier to go to one and it's cheaper, right? And there's no, I don't, I don't know. Maybe there was some like government. Um, policy change that spurred the sudden opening of all of these gyms it's possible i don't know yeah i guess i mean you could i guess imagine i don't know if this exists um but you could imagine like gyms that are like libraries you know like that's like a public gym imagine yeah right yeah right right yeah and there i guess like i mean i i suppose i it's just the the automatic kind of assumption that if we are going to, on a systemic level, change people's behavior, that means government intervention and and, and probably regulation, right? Um, and maybe it means deregulation. Maybe it means making it easier to open gyms, right? Maybe there's a lot of onerous bureaucratic red tape involved in opening a gym and staffing it, and you have, a, have to have a licensed fitness expert working there or whatever, like, mm-hmm. you know, and get rid of that. Let people build gyms wherever they want. Great for public health. So that mm-hmm. that's... I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm doing a lot of political complaining and it's not really fair to the authors who I like like and respect. I mean, I just get a little cranky about this stuff because I feel like we need some libertarians to start making these arguments in, in psychology, I feel. Do we need more libertarians? Is that We have too few libertarians. That's where, do, <laughs> do you know any? Um, do you count? <laughs> <laughs> no. Our libertarian pipeline is shockingly dry. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. there's a problem we got to work on. I definitely have libertarian students. 
yeah, so like, why don't they want to continue in psychology? Because of people like Chater and Lowenstein. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>